What's going on, everybody? That was kind of loud. I apologize. I'm just excited because it's the Energy is Love podcast, the podcast for the universe. Thank you, subscribers. Thank you, everybody that's listening. We really appreciate all the love and support that we're getting with the podcast. Remember, go to energieslovepodcast.com. Find all of our episodes. Keep up to date with all the things that we're doing. Also, if you haven't already, go follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, everything that's out there. You can go and find out about the show. And as always, remember to share the show. That's always the challenge to our listeners. If you like it, if you're loving it, and you want to see the podcast grow and expand so that we can reach more listeners, so that we can raise the vibration of the planet, tell somebody about it. Share the episodes. Remember, energieslovepodcast.com. Go subscribe on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, YouTube, everywhere that podcasts are available. Go find the show. Thank you. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Crystal Water Float Spa, located in Twilly, Utah. Online at crystalwaterfloat.com or follow them on Facebook at Crystal Water Float Spa. Crystal Water is a great place to get your float on. If you haven't floated, come out to Crystal Water and check them out. Obviously, you know about floating if you listen to the show because we have a lot of people involved in the industry of floating. At Crystal Water Float Spa, you get to lay back and float in dream pods. Crystal Water Float Spa is also the nation's only distributor of the amazing Dream Pod. Dream-pod.com. You can go find out more about the Dream Pod itself. It's a great tank to float in, and it's incredibly high-end, beautiful, amazing tank to lay back and float in. So, come out to Crystal Water Float Spa, float, then decide to open up your own float center wherever you're located, and contact Crystal Water so that you can get your Dream Pod crystalwaterfloat.com and dream-pod.com to learn all about the amazing dream pods. On this episode of the podcast, I had the wonderful, unique opportunity to sit down with Dr. Rick Doblin. He was one of the keynote speakers at the 2016 float conference up in Portland, Oregon, which we obviously attended because you've heard a whole bunch of episodes from the conference. Dr. Doblin is from MAPS, which is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, and their whole purpose behind what they do at MAPS is essentially legitimizing the use of psychedelics in regards to treating mental illness and other forms of like PTSD and things like that. So he came on the show, and that's what we talked about. We talked a lot about what they do at MAPS, their drive, their purpose. Uh, the fact is they were founded back in 1986, so it's been a long journey. They're getting closer and closer to having MDMA approved through the government in order to be used as a prescription, uh, specifically treating PTSD. So he's a wonderful guest. Uh, absolutely love sitting down with him. Keep in mind, this episode was recorded on location at the float conference. And so like some of our previous episodes where we're not in the studio, we don't have all the control in regards to outside influences. There's a little bit of background noise and we did the best that we could in order to make it most enjoyable and easy to listen to. So bear that in mind as you listen to this episode. We were on location in Oregon, so there's a little bit of sound in the background, but I think you guys will still enjoy it. I think you'll still benefit from everything that Rick has to say in regards to all the different things that he does, and this was truly a wonderful episode for me. Sit back, folks. Relax, because here we go with another episode of the Energies Love Podcast, the podcast for the universe, with my special guest, Dr. Rick Doblin. You're listening to the Energy is Love Podcast. Energy is love. The Energy is the love podcast. The Energy is Love podcast. Energy is Love. The Energy is Love podcast. The podcast for the universe. The Energy is Love podcast. Well, Rick, 
here we are. Okay. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's definitely yeah. a pleasure to have you on the show. I really appreciate the uh, opportunity and I appreciate you taking the time to sit down. Yeah. I like, um, you know, last minute, uh, <laughs> nimble decisions. <laughs> yeah. Kind of spur of the moment stuff. Yeah. For it's me, that's good. what it's all about. I feel like if the, if the universe sets it up and aligns it and the stars align, then most likely that's the direction I'm supposed to be going in. Yeah. And, and we felt that public education mm -hmm. is absolutely essential. For sure. As it relates to psychedelic research and marijuana research and drug politics, that the opportunity to speak with you and to speak to the people who will be listening, it's, it's so important that accurate information get out and people understand because that creates a climate either of acceptance or in the past it's been a climate of fear about letting the mainstreaming of these kind of yeah. technologies take place. A lot of that misinformation and misunderstanding of the realities of it. Yeah. I think that's one of the, because I followed your stuff, I follow everything, well not everything I should say, but I keep up to date with what MAPS is doing and it's fascinating first and foremost. I think it's really, I mean, you guys in my mind are right there on the edge of all of this stuff in a sense. And the fact is that what I think is interesting is you've been able to take that because I, I listened to you speak yesterday, obviously yeah. we we're here at the float conference and everything, and your life kind of led you down that path and you've turned that into into this passion that you've had for, I mean, what is it like 30 or 40 years that you've been in this? Uh, yeah, 40 years. And now there's uh, 25 people about working at MAPS and that doesn't count researchers at different locations and yeah. different projects. Yeah. Yeah. And we're having to expand. <laughs> That's good. That's always a good thing. That's yeah. probably a good sign. Yeah. Um, I thought about a thousand and one questions that I wanted to talk to you about, obviously. And I gave you a little kind of an idea of what the show's about and kind of what yeah. we focus on. And, uh, the first question that I kind of wanted to officially ask you, because you touched <laughs> on the topic yesterday mm -hmm. uh, during your speech, and I want to talk about Burning Man. Mm. Oh, oh, yeah, because okay. it's, uh, I know, I've never been before, it's one of those things that's kind of on my spiritual bucket list in a sense, and I, I, I definitely am going to be going one year, but give our listeners out there, because surprisingly enough, I'm sure there's people who hear Burning Man mm. and have no idea what it is. Well... Burning Man and MAPS were both started in 1986. Really? Yeah. Um, Burning Man has uh, been an expression of the San Francisco community. It grew out of San Francisco um, with just a small group of people on the beach um, gathering together for a party and to burn a structure of a man and um, but there, there was more of a, uh, an ethic or a, a vision about it too, about the kind of community and, mm -hmm. and these alternative celebrations, something so primitive about fire that it brings people deep inside themselves and so vividly portraying transience and death. And yet, you know, all this heat and light, it's something that out of that grew people getting together, trying to create uh, like a libertarian paradise, you could say. <laughs> and so they're open about drugs, open about sex, open about um, certain kinds of aggressions. Used to be more shooting guns involved, but there's flamethrowers. And, um, and a fair amount of um, self-governance, in a sense, of 
people uh, being assigned to take watch out and take so creating a safe container and having this ethic of um, leave no trace of go somewhere and stage this incredible event and then leave it without any sign that you were there or possibly even better but the main idea is leave no trace we're going to pristine areas it's um, it's grown out of San Francisco and moved to um, a desert area, um, Playa, um, outside of Reno, Nevada. And it's a week long, but the whole premise is this gifting economy that people give things away. There's no commerce, there's no brand names, there's no um, um, sales. They yeah. do sell ice, they do sell some drink coffee, no alcohol, <laughs> you know, but people give things away. So it's really an attempt from also a lot of people from the tech business who were a little bit um, over-intellectualized, not very emotional. You know, these are like a time. Uh-huh. So it's a lot of the tech people. And so people, it's now a town of 70,000. And it's absolutely incredible what people bring to it and the art that's there. It's also um, one of the things that I really appreciate out of this Burning Man community that's meant to be a different kind of governance and that there, a lot of it, it's what people bring themselves and people can do, there's a lot of freedom for different groups to do things. And so they had a burning of a man. But after a while, there was um, a sense that there needed to be this temple, like to make it a little bit more sacred, to make yeah. to, to focus more on death. And it was a place for people to go mourn things that had died, people that had died, and then that would be burned as well. So there's two large burns. First the temple, then the... I mean, first the Burning Man, which is more like um, kind of a carnival circus almost, the display, <laughs> and then the Burning of the Man, which is more quiet and spiritual, and that ends Burning Man. And it's grown, and now there's regionals all over the world. So from my point of view, what we're trying how many, to... How long have you been going to it? Well, I started... I heard about it in the 1990s, mm-hmm. and I started offering to the Burning Man organization in 2000 the idea of therapists and doctors and other people trained in psychedelic psychotherapy volunteering their time to help people who had difficult trips. Because early on, we're recognizing that if we do make MDMA into a medicine, that is going to change the cultural context of how people see psychedelics. And it also suggests that further reforms should be necessary for freedom and human rights. People should be able to explore these things. And how will regulators, police, uh, uh, drug abuse treatment experts look at the medicalization when they also see widespread recreational use that sometimes has negative consequences? They tend not to see the positive consequences. (laughs) Everybody focuses on that. So what we thought at Burning Man is such a high-profile event that if we could build a model of how in a post-prohibition world these kind of experiences, these communal experiences would be contained. Mm -hmm. And in float tanks, in psychedelics, you're relaxing and material emerges. And sometimes it's difficult material. And if you can um, support it, then it becomes very therapeutic. And that's the whole principle of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. We're working with people who have life-threatening illnesses or scared of dying or people with PTSD or uh, depression and suicidality is pretty common with PTSD. So the, the context of taking these drugs 
they've been used for thousands of years in this kind of mixture of spirituality and healing mm-hmm. and celebration. So Burning Man is a celebration. It's a new form, modern celebration that has very spiritual elements, but there's also a lot of ceremonial aspects to it. Yeah, there are, but there's also nudity and open sexuality in certain ways and very, um, as I said, it's more, it's what, what I feel it's doing is trying to bring a lot of the energies from, um, the unconscious to the surface, the sex and drugs and spirituality and, and try to forge a way where, uh, in a globalization world. That's why this, it's very influenced by the tech people and by, uh, people come for the experience because it's, it opens, there's your mind. I'm giving lectures there. There's, there's lecture series. Um, it's a 24 hour experience, you know, lasers and dancing all night <laughs> to the sunrise in this beautiful location. But the idea is if we can create a model of, um, support for these kind of experiences in what might be called recreational setting, mm-hmm. that that helps show that even in those settings that are the riskiest, that, that you can get a lot more benefits than harms, and the harms can be minimized, and in many cases turned into bad experiences, can be turned into difficult experiences, which become learning experiences. Yeah. And that's the goal. So I started in 2000, but the problem of the war on drugs is that we're talking harm reduction, and the goal of the war on drugs is to maximize the harm of drugs. Their, their basic idea is for those people that still choose to use drugs, we want it to hurt them as much as possible. We want them to be an example to others not to do it. So we will put them in jails. We'll put them in cages. We'll harass them. We'll make it so they can't vote. We'll make it so they can't get jobs. Um, and we'll also make it so they don't know what drugs they're getting. It could be impure drugs, and they can die from impure drugs. And in Prohibition in the 20s, people died from impure alcohol and went blind. And so it's... It was a conflict, and Congress, we're in such a terrific time right now. Just the other day, several days ago, the Bureau of uh, Prisons, the federal government said that they're no longer going to send federal prisoners to private prisons, for-profit prisons. Nice. Um, the week before that... That's a really huge thing. It's huge, because private prisons are in the business of having prisoners. Mm-hmm. They're not in the business of, of making prisoners you know, good citizens or... It's just such a bad idea, and that it's not really saving money. And it's not. I mean, when as far as it comes into the prison system, it doesn't do any. There's no rehabilitation. There's. Right. I, I used to work in the correctional facility, wow. and so I'm familiar. Do you know what I mean? And one of the things wow. that um, criminals look forward to is when they got to go to those places because it's such a different experience from their point of view and their perspective. Yeah. And so the fact that they're kind of doing away with that, I mean, that's amazing. That I think that'll have a lot of benefit. Yeah. And and the federal government, uh, the DEA, indicated that they're going to end the monopoly on the supply of marijuana that has been in existence (laughs) since 1968 that has prevented marijuana from ever becoming a medicine through the FDA, and they're going to end that. So there's a lot of good changes, and but in the the sort of run-up, the high points of the hysteria over the war on drugs about 10, 12 years ago, uh, or about 15 years ago, the... um, Rave Act was passed, and the this, the whole principle is reducing America's vulnerability to ecstasy. That's the Rave oh Act. My goodness. And Vice President Biden was in charge of this when he was in the Senate. And what they said was that more and more people are doing psychedelics. That's a scary thing. Um, and right now, psychedelics are actually penalized more. MDMA is more penalized than cocaine. Mm-hmm. 
it, it's astonishing, but that's that's the way it, it is. And what Biden did was encouraged a bill to be passed that built on the statutes that were created about crack cocaine epidemic and when people were having um, gathering abandoned buildings or things for crack houses. If you knew that um, somehow you had a facility or a part or a nightclub or anything where illegal drugs were being used, if, if, if you knew that crack was being used, that was a crime and you could have your assets taken away from you. They extended that to Burning Man, to places that are festivals and clubs and you know, cause because you it's do that common knowledge that it, things are being used there and everything. If you try to make it safer for people, that means you know they're using it. <laughs> so, it, so then there was this whole chill on actually doing those things that would reduce the harm. Mm-hmm. And this was in line with what the government was looking for to harm maximize. I mean, w- one of the most reliable indicators from the National Institute of Drug Abuse that has tracked drug use patterns over the last um, 45 years is what they call this inverse relationship between uh, drug abuse. Now, keep in mind, all illegal drug use is drug abuse, but this is like, have you ever used these drugs? That's all drug abuse. Yeah. So it's the relationship between drug abuse and perceived risk. And the more that the perceived risk goes up, the more drug abuse goes down. And that's how they track you know, people feeling more comfortable. The perceived risk goes down. They're like, oh, worried people are going to use these drugs more. So the important point is that they don't distinguish between use and abuse and perceived risk doesn't have to be actual risk, which helps them to then exaggerate the risk because that's, they're doing it in service of a good thing to reduce drug abuse. So you get Mm -hmm. these exaggerated drug abuse campaigns that then people don't believe. They don't know what to believe, but we get the criminalization of harm reduction. So starting in 2000, I um, offered to the Burning Man organization that we would bring people and they were scared to say yes. And that was the case for several years. And then in 2003, one of the rangers who was actually working with people with difficult trips said, we're, we don't have the capacity, we're overwhelmed, we don't have, but we don't want him to go get arrested and we don't want him to go to medical and get him tranquilized. So we were invited by some rangers and we worked on that for several years and we ended up getting to be the largest group of volunteers that wasn't actually under the rangers, yeah. which... And it showed the need was tremendous. And one of the main themes of this uh, psychedelic harm reduction is that difficult is not the same as bad. And if you can communicate that, people make an awful lot of progress. And people do want to deal with difficult things. Uh, People go to Burning Man for these deep experiences. And it's a danger to take psychedelics or to go into the float tank and say, I'm only going to look for the happy emotions. Yeah. <laughs> and if anything else happens, I'm going to squash it. Because uh-huh. you can't, you're, you know, when you're floating in a tank and relaxing or when you're starting an MD Marin LSD trip or ayahuasca trip, you, you let go into it. And part of the mystery and magic is that you don't know where it's going to go. And you have to be open for the range. And if you're only open for part of the range, you're going to build up these tensions and it's going to potentially make make it worse. And so... We showed that there was this incredible need, but then it got so large to really address the need. Um, people would have had to be told that these services were there. Yeah, People would have to be um, brought there, encouraged. And, uh, and then it got a little bit concerning with uh, the relationship between Burning Man and the, the law, the BLM. There's always been, um, in a sense, this is a big event with a lot of expense in very poor areas of the country. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the p- 
police and the town saw this was an opportunity for them to kind of finally make some money. And so it was very dangerous even driving there about getting, if you go a few miles over the limit, you can get a ticket. And just the relationship with the police was very difficult. And, and so our relationship also um, with the Burning Man organization, they felt like that it was just too much of a risk. Yeah. Um, and so that led us to think about what to do next. And we, um, Annie Harrison, who um, is the partner of John Gilmore, who's on our board of directors, uh, Annie Harrison um, had this idea, longtime burners, that what was necessary was to shift from trying to work with the Burning Man organization officially to doing it in our village independently, and then they're not responsible. They can be very sympathetic, but they're not liable because they create these camps, these areas where people can offer to the community different things. Mm -hmm. And they're not the ones offering it. They're not responsible for it. So Annie set up a tea house in their village at Burning Man. And I just sat back and watched. Um, but every year I was going, trying. so I've been there every year since 2003. And I've been trying to work on this gradual integration of this model. Um, and, and the tea house worked. Um, it wasn't explicitly for people with difficult trips. It was a place for people to get hydrated. People could rest. People could sleep overnight. They did have people with the tea ceremonies. It was very calming um, in shade for people. It was, it was kind of definitely an oasis. Yeah. So then we said, all right, let's... Um, it had that kind of secondary purpose, though, right? For yeah. people who were tripping and everything, and it was a bad experience, they could come there. Yeah, although that was very secondary, not as a promoted, mm -hmm. this is what the purpose is. So then I saw how that worked. So then I thought, okay, now we can come back. And we had this um, and decided to offer this the first year of the Zendo. Um, and what, what that was is that in 2006, our 20th anniversary and the 20th anniversary of Burning Man, and, and we decided, MAPS, our board of directors decided to celebrate it at Burning Man. <laughs> and we decided that, because you couldn't be so clear about, it's not so much pro-psychedelics, but it was pro-fruits of psychedelics. So there was a lecture series about the science. There was psychedelic art uh, with uh, Alex Gray and, and many others and Big Dome. And we had... Um, um, one of our supporters from Switzerland is a Zen meditator. Mm -hmm. um, lifelong Zen was one of the leaders of the Zen community in Switzerland. Um, and he decided uh, for our 20th anniversary that he would have a cardboard Zendo built by uh, world expert Zen Zendo architect, Paul Disco, and that would be something he would donate to our um, 20th anniversary camp and that he would bring in a group of meditators some nuns some monks some others from switzerland some secular and that they would have a fire there that there would always be somebody meditating and, and we decided where are we going to put this in our camp you know do they need quiet we decided to put it right on the esplanade on the, the main sort of street where people walk by uh -huh. um, it was incredible and they were interested uh, in the combination of um, meditation, dance, and MDMA. It was a um, celebration, and this structure was intentionally thought of as lasting for one year and then getting burned up. But it was such a beautiful, elegant structure that we kept it. And, and we <laughs> kept it and kept, kept it. We just uh, finally rebuilt it. Um, but we call it the Zendo Project, 
to give this idea, it's a peaceful retreat, but a um, processing time as well. Mm-hmm. So we're comfortable. Do you have people that come specifically just for that? Um, to meditate that space and meditate and yeah, I mean we we're saying that it's it's a place. the The priority is for people that are um, having a difficult time, and their friends feel either they're off alone without friends, mm-hmm. or they're with a place where their friends feel like they've engaged part of their consciousness that they would like someone more experienced to kind of work with them. <laughs> yeah. So their friends will bring them. And, but it's also for people who uh, are tripping, but are having an okay time and just want to have a peaceful place. Or it's for people that are disoriented, having nothing to do with drugs. <laughs> but, but if it gets filled, the people that are not tripping, <laughs> you know, we'll try to move them outside. Yeah. Um, and so there's been this, once we started doing it in our, um, village, then it's been a struggle every year. What do we call it? Um, how blatant can we be? How, uh, clear? And so it's been psychological support services. And every year there's been a little bit more of a relaxation on the part of, um, the Burning Man organization, but also on the part of the police. So the police there, the, the BLM, they're not, they know that they are going to be encountering people that are usually wandering alone, tripping, not quite grounded. They're not really a threat to anybody else, but they're a threat to themselves because yeah. they're not fully paying attention and they're engaged in something that's, they're running away in something. Sometimes they're like, um, you know, too loud or too, Whatever, but the police don't really want to arrest them, but they don't want to divide others. And at the same time, the medical staff doesn't know what to do with them. They're they're medically okay, but they're they don't just sit on their cot, and, yeah. you know. So they often get tranquilized. So for somebody that's having a difficult experience with psychedelics, getting tranquilized is not a good thing. Um, the reason is it does bring you down some, but it freezes that conflict in place. It doesn't go away. It's part. It's still in your psyche. I mean, it's where did the stuff come from? It wasn't part of your conscious awareness. Some stuff comes up. You start trying to deal with it, and if you have trouble, it's way better to endure it for hours and hours and hours until the drug starts fading than to try to tranquilize yourself or run away from it. Because that reinforces this idea that it's too much. You can't handle it. Mm-hmm. So um, we've grown every year. This year. Um, well, I'll just say that we had uh, two locations last year. We've been able to get more confidence. And so the, the BLM actually um, is comfortable with having alternative solutions for people, even if they're on drugs, illegal drugs. They're not dealers. They're, they're just you know, that, that don't involve the police. And so they actually ask. Um, this is the first year that we're giving a training to the police. You're giving a training to them. Yeah, I mean, meaning 45-minute education uh-huh, about what, what, uh-huh. what Zendu is and what the purposes of it is. That's the first year ever. This is the first year ever we're able to say psychedelic harm reduction explicitly. And it's the first year that they're putting something about it in the greeter package that all 70,000-plus people go will get it so that they're gaining their courage. And they're, because nobody has ever really been prosecuted under this RAVE Act. It's mm-hmm. just been this intimidating factor. Just the thing looming over everybody. Yeah. So for us, Burning Man is really a symbol of um, festivals of people, younger people trying to incorporate psychedelics into Western culture, but with a spiritual overtone. 
And if we can help with that model, that model is spreading. There are so um, but there's so much interest in electronic dance music in different kind of festivals all over the world. We have one of our Zendo team, the leader of it actually is um, just coming back from the Boom Festival in Portugal. Mm-hmm. And they have a tremendous uh, harm reduction project that we helped uh, start with them in 2002. So it's been sometimes very frustrating and sad in a way for me to go back and forth from Boom to Burning Man because <laughs> Boom is in Portugal. Drugs are decriminalized in Portugal. It's been working very well. Like across the board? Across the board. And so at the festival, they have thin layer chromatography to analyze all the drugs. And people know what they're taking. Mm-hmm. It, it, that's just an astonishing thing for people to say, I have confidence that this... Because sometimes people actually would have a difficult trip and they'd like, like I don't know what I've taken. Maybe I slipped something. And yeah, then yeah. if you can analyze it, then, then you know how to handle them a lot more. So... That's the world-leading ex, uh, location boom festival. It's every two years in Portugal for psychedelic harm reduction. They integrate everything, and it's all out in the open, and they don't have to worry about the police. The police like what they're doing because it, it, it reduces hassles for the police. They're not looking for people having difficult trips. No, no, it's not yeah. easy for them by any means. Yeah, so that's kind of a long answer about Burning Man. <laughs> but for us, it's um, so exciting to think of it as... Um, building a model for the future. And mm-hmm. I think that's how a lot of the Burning Man people think. Also, you're, you're bringing these energies up. There's more um, comfort with letting people be themselves yeah. and more sense of common unity despite this apparent diversity. Um, you guys have had so many, and it sounds like you're in that phase of everything that you've been doing where it's just, a lot of the things are starting to come, like yeah. the fruits of your labors are coming, right? Yeah. Did you ever think that there was going to, like how hard of a journey has that been? Did you ever think you'd get to this point? Like you talked yesterday about, it looks like 2021 is kind of the maybe. Yeah. Yeah. yeah this is when we think MDMA will accept as prescription medicine. When, when I first started thinking about this, this was in 1972 and this was after the massive crackdown and it was looking pretty grim and the war in Vietnam was not ending. And, um, and so I, I felt like it didn't matter whether it worked or not. You know, that there was this, this was what made the most sense to me, is that the world was fighting and potentially destroying itself because people were not recognizing their common humanity and not and dividing themselves in different ways in tribes and countries and religions, all, all of that. And that, that psychedelics were the more direct path to breaking through the ego in the sense of our limited... Like even here at the Flotation Conference, um, the, some of the research was about the default mode network of the brain. Mm-hmm. That, and how that's sort of the sense of self and how being in the flotation tank um, changes, weakens some of the connections in the default mode network so that more variety comes to the surface. Yeah, um, And that's exactly what we're learning with psychedelics. So that there's this um, political sense. And I felt like the I had to separate out um, for doing this for the long term. My satisfaction from success because that might never happen, from just effort. You know, if I tried my best, then that's all I was directly in control over, and then I could feel happy because of that. But if the world didn't change, and then I'd be okay. Uh, and then I also learned one of the other things was to try to not get ahead of myself, to think, like if I, I we do think 2021 is when, but we have one key negotiation with FDA, 
this um, review of all of our phase two data for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. And that's going to take place over the next couple of months. And then we'll be uh, we'll able to be fine-tuning our time projections. But I've learned that if I invest myself like, oh, yeah, it's really going to happen, then, then when it doesn't, and like we saw in the video about the people starting float centers, about how it's harder <laughs> than you think, and if yeah. something went wrong, it will. Um, then it's very discouraging if you've invested in, oh, yeah, I'm going to have it by this date. So I had to remove myself from any success at all and then also from trying to project a timetable. But at the same time, you need these timetables to try to figure out what's the most efficient thing for you to do. Mm -hmm. So I, I felt that this, the value of these experiences were so profound and, and have been for thousands of years. It's not like, uh, you know, anything new. Uh, the, the foundations of Western culture, the Eleusinian mysteries involved the psychedelic, the Greeks, all of our famous Greek, uh, Pythagoras, Aristotle, all these took place in this, took part in this festival that involved psychedelic drugs. It's the foundation of our, our culture. So I, I felt that eventually the love that I felt from taking MDMA was so different from the picture of one dose, brain damage, miracle, here is a, you know, not true. This is a, you know, uh, miraculously powerful destructive agent. And you take it one time and you're forever altered for the worse. And that was the government perspective. And that was the DEA perspective. That was what the public education was coming about. I just felt like the difference between the reality and the propaganda was so great that there would eventually be um, a possibility for this. And one, one of the things that was so... I want to ask you something. I apologize. Yeah. I don't mean to interrupt yeah. you, but why did, why did you guys choose to focus on MDMA specifically is the one that we wanted to push through and get approved and everything like that? Yeah. What about it? Made um, it so the, the question is, how do we integrate into a, a frightened culture mm -hmm. this idea of um, modifying states of consciousness and then working with them for different kind of reasons. I mean, it's the same kind of question with flotation tanks. How do you, or yoga or meditation, mm -hmm. how do these techniques become mainstreamed when they're initially um, perceived of as foreign or frightening or disruptive in different ways? Uh, for psychedelics, the initial work that was really done in the uh, late 40s, 50s, 60s, early 70s was with the classic psychedelics, with the LSD, with the psilocybin, some with mescaline, um, some with uh, uh, the plants, peyote. Uh, there was this, you know, backlash, as we all know. And we're now in this place where for the, there's now more psychedelic research than at any time in the last 45 years. What made us choose MDMA was that it was a different kind of psychedelic. I still consider it a psychedelic, meaning uh, mind manifesting. Humphrey Osmond coined the term in the 50s in a discussion with Aldous Huxley and psychedelic psyche and delos is to reveal the mind, mind manifesting. Um, and that can be flotation tanks or psychedelic. Um, meditation is psychedelic. Marijuana is psychedelic. Uh, I've tried to reclaim the word from psychedelic equals counterculture equals criminal equals yeah. suppression to psychedelic is a broad range of things that is about opening the mind. And that was the original intention. And that, um, so I consider MDMA is more gentle. MDMA reduces fear. MDMA helps 
people deal with difficult emotions from a more peaceful perspective. If you feel more like yourself, you don't feel, um, it's not like you're hallucinating the way mm-hmm. people think about classic psych. It's not like there's this flood of imagery inside your brain. It, I like to say that with uh, MDMA, you could take it and talk to your mother on the phone <laughs> if you had to. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes you might even plan to. <laughs> you know, it's that kind where you can continue a logical train of thought, but your logic is deeper and more fuller because you don't have these emotional blocks. A lot of those fears are just set aside. Yeah, or that you can see them. Mm-hmm. They're, 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 they're surmountable, whereas before they were insurmountable. And we know that this is acting in certain fear centers, the amygdala of the brain, reducing activity. Uh, but that's just an explanation for what we recognize emotionally, is that people can uh, accept themselves and who they are and what's happened to them with this more um, sense of peace. And then that experience um, is less threatening. It's profound. It's surprising how little of a shift from normal consciousness MDMA is, and yet how profound it is. Whereas with LSD, with the classic psychedelics, by this reduction of activity in the default mode network, they're taking apart your sense of self. MDMA works in the opposite direction. It kind of helps you feel more yourself to bring your different parts and experiences and learn from them all. Whereas the classic psychedelics, you become less oriented by your ego and more perceptions. Um, and, and so it's many times in these worst moments when people are having a difficult trip, they think yeah. they're actually dying. They're letting go of their ego. They're they're not identifying anymore as this limited person. They're part of, and, and you know we're part of billions and billions of years of history. We're, we're our bodies have evolved all these years. Our, our people have invented language that we're using. We didn't create it. It's you know <laughs> we're, we're the beneficiaries of this enormous sweep of history. Some of it tortured and tormented and horrific. And so you you get that, but that's more of a challenge because if you're stuck in I am a man, I am an American and I am Jewish and I am, you know, educated and all these different things that I, the, the, how you define yourself and you see that, um, you're more than that or you're, and that that is dissolving and that can be scary. So people perceive themselves to be physically dying many times when they're having a difficult trip, when they're actually just having this kind of, uh, going beyond the ego process, the ego death. And, it's like and that default mode is kind of shutting down. Yeah, and you can relate it exactly to human history, to um, Copernicus and Galileo, when people thought, you know, the uh, Earth was the center of the universe and everything revolved around us. And then look how much with uh, the Catholic Church burned Father Bruno at the stake for saying that it wasn't that way, that the Earth was revolving around the sun. <laughs> and... It's like that in the psyche terms. We think that we are the center of the universe. And then there's a foreground background switch that takes place. And then you see that you are just in the background. And this foreground is this incredible sweep through history of, you know, now billions and millions of people contributing to our society. That I mean, I didn't create this microphone, this technology. You know, we're we're all who we are is because of who all of us are. Yeah. And you get that sense. But it's more challenging. So MDMA anchors you in who you are, and you can feel more fuller. And um, Stan Groff, who's my mentor in many ways, and um, 
talked about how you become transparent to the transcendent. You know, that, that you don't, your ego doesn't really die. We need to think of ourselves as limited in time and space in this human body for this brief trajectory, and that that is fundamentally who we are, as well as part of this. So you're the drop and the ocean at the same time. And one is not more important than the other. And that's a big danger. Sometimes people look to spirituality in India and say, okay, got all these spiritual people go meditate on the mountaintop and people starving and dying all over the place. Yeah. And they don't improve the society. So that's where we get this sort of social justice uh, link back from mysticism and spirituality. But for me, what's been the characteristic of our you know, 21st century is science, is science and technology. So we can't just take it as um, religion and spirituality. It has to be blended with science. And they are compatible. Einstein said they were compatible. And, uh, you know, lot... so I think that that is the, the essence of maps. And the, I'd say the difference, I didn't really elaborate this as much during my talk, but I think the difference in some ways between John Lilly and Stan Groff, who were my two main influences, John Lilly through the flotation tank, but also through LSD and the structure of the mind of the human biocomputer, and Stan through LSD and spirituality and transpersonal psychology and psychotherapy is that one of them flamed out and when the backlash happened, got destroyed by it and other things, and one of them survived. Stan Groff is now 85. He's doing great traveling all over the world. And I think the difference was that one of the differences that John Lilly was interested in knowledge. He was a scientist. He has a book called The Scientist. Stan was interested in knowledge, but interested in healing, knowledge for the purpose of healing. So I think there's something more grounding and um, more focused on kind of uh, the human level to focus on healing and psychotherapy. Do you feel like that's kind of a, uh, one of the main driving factors behind your work and what you... Yeah, it's, it's all about... We're, MAPS is basically a nonprofit psychedelic and medical marijuana pharmaceutical company trying to develop... Uh, psychedelic drugs and marijuana into packages with psychotherapy. The marijuana is more of the medicine by itself, but mm -hmm. the psychedelics are meant to be packaged with uh, psychotherapy or people are microdosing maybe in certain ways, mm -hmm. you know, under certain circumstances, you know, psychedelics can be take home medications, but our focus has been healing, demonstrating healing through the most refined methodologies evaluated by the most rigorous regulatory agencies with the idea of expanding opportunities for people to get um, non-ordinary states of consciousness for healing purposes, and then to expand that out and have a ripple effect to change people's attitudes in our culture about the importance, the potential, and the ways to mitigate the risks so that we can move beyond prohibition. And really, looking at the world right now, for me, this scary election cycle with so many people expressing their fears and their their baser instincts and their you know us and them divisions it's it's very scary and that is what led to um that could easily lead to totalitarianism or to uh, where facts don't matter so the rise of the unconscious was is was and is extremely scary and what it means to me is that um, it's not a system where it's sustainable if you just have an elite that are more open-minded, you know, or an elite that's more wealthy with the wealth disparities. You, you, you could also say the spirituality and the, the inequities of 
you know, people who have the opportunity to travel the world and sample different psychedelics and pay to go in float tanks. Yeah. And all, you know, it has to be um, grounded in, in many, many millions of people. And then you have a healthy society and then we're in a more safer situation. So for me, the idea of MDMA as the first choice, it's more gentle and will be accepted by more people initially. Um, and in order to work with MDMA in a therapeutic setting or any psychedelic, the therapists need to work with it themselves. They need to have had their own experience with it. Um, much of the therapy is done by the person themselves when their eyes are closed, listening to music and having their own experience. And then they come out and talk to the therapist, but they're the ones really doing the work. And there's a lot of times where the therapists are unaware of what imagery is going on. It's not like your vision of Freudian psychotherapy where somebody is free associating <laughs> and they're talking out loud the whole time. Yeah. And the therapist knows where they are, but the therapist, you know, falls asleep because they're so bored <laughs> because nothing's really <laughs> happening. And the patient too. I mean, so this is like, um, this flow again, a free associating, but it's more with a purpose. And a lot of it is taking place inside, um, the, the subject, the patient themselves. Mm -hmm. And the therapist is looking at their body language, looking at their, um, are they tight or opening up or they're breathing? Just different ideas. And every hour or so checking in, sometimes conversations can last 15, 20 minutes or more. And then uh, patients would go inside or all different kind of scenarios. There's no one pattern fits all, but the therapists are more effective if they know what the drug is doing in yeah. themselves. So... I think for integrating psychedelics into psychotherapy, it's not the same way as integrating some new medicine into psychiatry. You know, psychiatrists don't think they need to give themselves electroconvulsive therapy <laughs> uh, to, you know, give it to their patients. But to integrate psychedelics, um, it is important to try it. And I think the field of um, psychiatry and psychotherapy will open up first to more gentle substances that don't challenge who they think they are as much, but open their emotional blocks. Mm -hmm. And then you start seeing in a wider way. So that that's our just thought is that MDMA will be um, a doorway to help heal a sick culture from a bad trip from the sixties. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and actually I say, I saw this um, at Burning Man, the, you know, there was a man who was learning to be a therapist, and um, he was one of the people that was helping at the Zendo, at uh -huh. the sanctuary space. And um, one day, he helped somebody, and, and then the next day, it was almost like he felt he deserved help. He had his own breakdown. Really? And um, it turned out that he had had a difficult LSD trip about 40 years before. And it was a very difficult trip. Um, and he felt like um, he didn't handle it well, and, and it was this terror in him of himself. Um, and we thought maybe to try to do an MDMA experience with him, and that helped him to look at this difficult LSD trip from the past and to integrate it and to learn from it. Um, and that sort of confirmed this theory for me, that here in an individual level, MDMA was helping deal with a difficult... LSD trip from the 60s, <laughs> but culturally, I think MDMA can help the whole culture. And the, the work that's being done, though, with psilocybin is incredible. There's research at uh, Johns Hopkins, NYU, um, UCLA. There's been... I think they all have applicability in the, in the realm of all these different things. Oh, yeah, because what we're really trying to do 
is talk about psychedelic psychotherapy, which is um, MDMA is not like the only thing or the best. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's got its use, but all these other psychedelics have their roles as well. So we want to have these clinics where doctors, uh, therapists uh, can work with patients with a range of substances. But it, it has to get into the system one substance at a time for one specific purpose. Yeah. And then you start doing that. But then even beyond the vision I sketched out a little bit yesterday was that you have these psychedelic therapy centers, but they also have float tanks and they have massage and they have yoga. And so these are more like healing centers. Yeah. It's a beautiful idea. It's a beautiful vision. Yeah. And they become rites of uh, initiation also for people who, in a post-prohibition world, I think will have it where... Um, it should be everybody's individual human right to explore their consciousness with these substances without having to be part of a specific religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these centers will become places where people can have their first experience and then they know what they're getting into. They don't have any unusual reactions. They, they get a card and then they can buy it on their own. It's a wonderful idea. I love it. <laughs> yeah. I, I'd say that's like a um, 25 year idea. <laughs> 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 so one of the other things that you touched on yesterday and I wanted to pick your brain more about really the reality is I wanted to hear more about it. That's kind of the fun thing about doing a podcast. Yeah. I could ask whatever the hell I want. But um, you, you touched a little bit on John C. Lilly. Uh, for those of you, because some of our listeners may not know, but obviously he's kind of accredited with creating float yeah, tanks yeah, and sensory yeah. deprivation yeah, and everything did. like that. Um, what exactly was he researching and how was he researching it when he was working with dolphins? Well, um, you know, they were looking at, he was funded by the Navy. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were also looking at how, this was in the context of the Cold War, um, funded by the military. And they were also looking at um, people in low stimulation environments, um, underwater in submarines, or going to space shots, or people being brainwashed by, you know, communists and stuck in isolation and then supposedly going crazy without <laughs> stimulation and after a couple you know months or different times so it was all this research and trying to see what does um, the what happens when you reduce incoming stimulation as as much as you can mm-hmm. what happens to the brain and can it be beneficial or can it be harmful and can it be used to break people down you know, if it's so, that was the context. John was trying to say, "How can I develop something that minimizes uh, input from the senses as much as possible?" And then he was such a pioneer. He started using LSD in the tank. This was before he started doing the dolphins, uh-huh. and he started trying to chart his brain as if it was a computer. I mean, if you look at some of the images now of uh, our brain, we have a pretty clear idea of how many different functions are localized in different parts of the brain. It's not like it all does somehow or other all together. It's like there's certain centers, visual centers, hearing centers, just kind of moral sense evaluating centers, incredible diversity. And so he tried to chart that out and spending time floating and having lots of time to think Um, and explore his brain he started thinking about what other animals um, mammals or fish or anything on earth had this floating environment and he started noticing that you know whales dolphins had very large brains in proportion to their bodies and what what are they doing with these brains 
you know, are they doing things that are, um, they're, they're communicating through each other, through ways that we don't communicate through, uh, you know, echoes through certain kind of crowd. Whales can communicate to each other over a thousand miles. Yeah. So there's just unbelievable. So he started getting very much interested in it. And the focus for him was, you know, are there lessons to be learned from dolphins? Mm-hmm. Um, they seem very in mythology, um, saving people from sharks and they're friends of people. And, you know, they're kind of mermaids, <laughs> you know, but, but enticing, you know, there's, there's this relationship. So he, he, um, in the same way that Jane Goodall started trying to talk to gorillas and yeah. language, he started trying to teach language and he had a series of dolphin trainers and would be trying to interact to see in what frame this dolphin brains were, were, um, communicating and able to communicate it, it was um, I, I met John through the dolphins I mean I was very interested in the flotation tanks I was very interested in the uh, particularly with the work with LSD uh, but what I was able to do to meet him for the first time is I knew that he had two dolphins Joe and Rosie that he was going to release into the wild and wanted to see uh, that he'd been training language but he wanted to see could they be reintegrated, reintegrated into wild dolphin ponds mm-hmm. And in Sarasota, Florida, where I was, was Moat Marine Laboratory, which is a world-famous shark laboratory. And the dolphin ponds, pods in the Gulf of Mexico are among the best studied in the whole world. And I arranged for them to say, yes, they would take these two dolphins. Um, and so I contacted John and said, there's a, a place here that you should consider. And, and John and uh, Roberta Quist uh, at the time, um, they came to Sarasota, to the Mount Marine. And I went for a walk with John one time, and they said, I've done all of this on the dolphins that you can see. This is a real possibility, but I really don't care about the dolphins. <laughs> <laughs> let me talk to you about tanks. Yeah, let me talk to you about LSD yeah. and tanks. And um, and that started our, our relationship. But it was already at a time where um, he he wasn't really that interested in science anymore. He was already... he. I think he was so ahead of his time. Mm-hmm. And that when... Everything looks like it's going to, this sort of links back to what we were talking about. When everything looks like it's about to happen and you're so excited and you get the world is changing and consciousness is spreading yeah. and then there's this massive backlash, you know, it just, I think it, it, um, different people affect in different ways, but it seemed like, um, John was so impatient and so, uh, if not impatient, but he was so ahead of his time, he, he just wasn't willing to work with, he just, more or less escaped and he didn't do work with the dolphins didn't really contribute much to the tanks didn't contribute to lsd research um, and kind of escaped into the illusion of spirituality through repeated use of ketamine and addiction to cocaine and um so he couldn't propose something to do with these dolphins so i had the world-class people ready to do it we have perfect place for putting these dolphins and and it, it just couldn't come together but but through that relationship i um offered him um the opportunity to um, do MDMA therapy. And so we actually did MDMA therapy with him. With John. Uh, with John. Um, and, and during it, he sort of came into, this was at my house in Sarasota. Um, <laughs> he came into his body and he had abscesses from where he was injecting himself with mm-hmm. ketamine. And it was just so hard for him to see. Um, but it didn't click like I should change my path. It was just like, that's so hard. I just, and he just um, turned away again. Do you think, I mean, we'll use him for an example. And by all means, um, do you think that at some point people 
Now, granted, we're not talking like MDNA is going to be some magical drug that's going to right. heal all mental right. illness right. or anything like that. Um, but do you think that some people get too far to a point where, do you know what I mean, regardless of how... I, I think that people have to heal themselves. Mm-hmm. That That's the fundamental principle is that we are um, supporting people's efforts to heal themselves. We can't do it. The drug doesn't do it automatically. The therapist doesn't do it. In the end, the person is healing themselves. Um, I think there's always the possibility that people could, um, no matter how far along they are, could make a change. So I don't want to say there's certain kind of people that are hopeless. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I just think it takes courage and will to do that and some people um will will do that and we have to learn how to help more and more other people do that i think at that moment i I had sort of built this relationship with john through the uh, dolphins but also a friend of mine was a chemist and it separated out the isomers of ketamine and i actually went to um, bring them to john and we did them (laughs) together and determined that they were different and but that you know Together in the racemic mixture, that was the preferable form, but there were differences. Yeah. So I'd explored ketamine with him a bit, um, not in any way to the extent that he was. Um, but, you know, it's that's where I think courage and will and um, free choice come in. I mean, you can choose to, to keep uh, looking away or you can choose to get... Involved, and a lot of it is who you think you are. I mean, if you think you are this um, expert, okay, here's an example too. I was with one of the world's um, leading experts on Jung, and this was back before MDMA was illegal. We were introducing MDMA to different people to to prepare them, and we had this great opportunity since it was still legal. And, um, you know, she was terrific about archetypes, uh, written loads of books. Um, but under the influence of MDMA, what so impressed me was that she was able to become a beginner in this flow of psychedelic experience of how that emotion works. So despite all of her training, that, that she was able to um, not see, be stuck and see herself as this expert, you know, but see herself also as this beginner in a different thing that was really important. Yeah, I think um, I, I don't know why you know, John was the way he was or, but I think if you have years and years and years of that running away, it's harder. Um, One of the saddest things I ever saw was uh, in 1993 and it was the 50th anniversary of LSD and the Swiss Academy of Sciences was having a conference in part to honor Albert Hoffman who had invented um, LSD in 38 and then accidentally ingested some in 43. So this was the 50th anniversary and it was this very delicate time, 1993. Um, we'd finally gotten permission in 1992 from the FDA to open up psychedelic research. Mm-hmm. LSD research had not really um, started in a formal way. Um, but this conference was beautiful. It was invitation only. It was you know Swiss Academy of Sciences. It was several days. It was in this mountain, you know, lake, mountain area resort. And um, it was a three-day conference, actually. And John came um, day late, (laughs) and he came to the back of a room during one of the plenary sessions. And he asked a completely inappropriate question. 
that was he wasn't really there paying attention, you know, and then he left early. Yeah. It was like he so wanted to be there. He couldn't not be there, but he couldn't be there as just one person among many having conversation. Uh-huh. He was so into his own world. So I, I think it's very, very sad. And, and But I honor him in so many ways and just think that pure knowledge, it's a dangerous thing. And when you talk about shamanism, a lot of times, like Carlos Castaneda, one of the books was Tales of Power. You know, knowledge or power are, are um, not long-term strategies. You know, I think <laughs> healing does have that. Yeah. I mean, you can be always struggling for more knowledge and more power, and that's not inherently bad. But I think the grounding, humanizing aspect of healing, and that's what I've been so impressed about being at this whole conference too, is the focus on healing pain, but also people recognizing that there's emotional pain. And so it talks about eating disorders and talks about PTSD and how how the floats and that that sense of being supported and safe. That's the the essence you could say of MDMA is very much like being in a float tank because in a float tank, you are perfectly safe. You can let your, um, you can completely relax. You're not going to, drown you're you're not going to get water in your eyes or your mouth or your nose but and you don't have to use a bit of your muscle energy to float mm-hmm. you are completely supported and warm you're so safe um and what mdma adds to that sense of safety is this kind of emotional relaxation about the um, emotional wounds or pains and it helps to deepen that sense of physical safety and into this kind of um, loving emotional safety. Um, and I think that's, that's something incredible. And I love that you that you describe it too in the way that what you guys are doing, like nobody, you can't heal somebody. It's they have to make the choice to heal themselves and you guys just assist along that way and yeah. provide them not just a, an environment and an opportunity, but here's things that can help in that process. Yeah, the best metaphor, the best actual comparison is as a midwife. Mm-hmm. The midwife is not the woman giving birth. <laughs> <She> <laughs> they can assist, it. but they can't do it. Yeah, and I I mean, because it correlates so close for me, we talked a little bit too as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're in the spiritual community and we do all these different, you know, we have all these healing modalities where we're helping people in the process of healing some of that emotional baggage and some of those wounds and some of those things that people hide from and keep hidden and i mean at the core of that as well i believe is the fact that they're not magic you know witch doctors that have magical powers they're simply just there assisting that person and healing themselves yeah and i think magical witch doctors are often not uh fully who they really are making themselves (laughs) out to be um i I had a, a relationship breakup one time um this woman had had breast cancer and had gotten over it, but was terrified of getting it again. Mm-hmm. And she'd gotten this idea that these Filipino faith healers, psychic surgeons, could keep her from having breast cancer. And I was a little bit skeptical. Yeah. <laughs> and so they actually came to town one time, and um, she asked me to come and get psychic surgery. And I said, all right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so she did it, and, and then... That, you know, so you go into a room. It's just like a small 
office room, hotel rooms, a smaller mm-hmm. usual hotel room, no bed. But there's a massage table, and the massage table was up against the back wall, and they were sitting. Uh, the shaman and the psychic surgeon and assistant were sitting behind it. There were sheets that went all the way to the ground uh, from this massage table. And you were supposed to lie on the massage table, and they would do some stuff. But you couldn't see their legs. You couldn't see the bottom of you know what's underneath the massage table. So they they like pulled some stuff out of me and showed it to me. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. Could I have it? <laughs> and they're like, what? They're like, well, it came from me. I'd like to look at it and yeah, yeah. see what it is. And they're like, no way. We can't give this to you. You know, and they pulled it out from I mean, <laughs> that's like the uh, most generic magic trick of all time there. Yeah. And so they wouldn't give it to me. And then I, when I started sharing with my girlfriend, Wendy, that this was my opinion, it just... It was hard for her because she was investing so much hope that this was going to prevent recurrence of breast cancer. Mm-hmm. So we broke up. So these magicians, um, and we need to understand the placebo effect. I mean, how much, so much, the whole idea of placebo is that you trick yourself into getting better because mm-hmm. you think you have the real thing. And the magic is, how do you trick yourself? That's incredible. Maybe we can do that intentionally. Yeah. yeah. We need to learn about how to do that. Um, yeah, the power of the mind in that aspect. Yeah, that's the most incredible discovery. You know, the pharmaceutical companies aren't looking at that <laughs> <laughs> because they're looking no, for we got to eliminate the placebo effect and figure out what the drug does. Uh-huh. Um, and so we can combine that. I mean, psychedelic psychotherapy is, um, and even in the tank. I mean, um, I've heard stories uh, actually uh, yesterday about how some PTSD patients go in the tank. And it doesn't help them. Mm-hmm. These memories come up and they're, they're still too painful. I mean, it, just being in a meditative place and difficult stuff comes up, um, you still have to do that acceptance and looking at it if you can. Yeah. So the space itself, you, you need that kind of preparation, anticipation that is sort of the placebo effect. That it, you know, Here's how you handle it when it gets difficult if you want to. If you're going in to try to resolve an issue... Um, you need to be prepared for that issue to come up. So yeah. that's where um, the power of the mind is in, incredible. And, and that's where I felt that this, again, this link to science, that what we're trying to do has to be consistent with the most uh, methodologically advanced, rigorous uh, scientific designs. And we have to test what we think. I mean, I, I you know did a PhD at Harvard at the Kennedy School of Government uh, in public policy on the regulation of the medical use of psychedelic drugs. And I had this whole big section on how to deal with a double-blind problem. How do you do a double-blind study with a psychedelic drug? And I, I really thought I had it figured out. Um, but when we started doing the MDMA research, it turned out my theory was wrong. <laughs> but at least I got a PhD. <laughs> but at least I knew enough that we have to test it. And so that's that's the healing, too. I think that's the sort of the Stan Groff jolly dichotomy, if I'd say, that the, that when you're dealing with psychotherapy, you're constantly testing your theories. And people are either getting better or they're not. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're confronted with that kind of, it's not an abstract knowledge that it's hard to check. You know, earth coincidence control and a lot of the things that John was exploring in his uh, ketamine experiences were interesting, in the, you know, but they weren't empirically validate it yeah and i think that's that kind of once you start 
um, going off into your own world, but are not trying to bring it back to verify and to test, then you're in danger. Mm -hmm. And I think that emphasis on healing and psychotherapy is, are these people getting better or not? Yeah. Or is it really <laughs> worth our time? Yeah. I uh, can't thank you enough, man. This has been great. Wow. Yeah. Tell me, because uh, you mentioned it last yesterday, and uh, um, next year you guys have the conference in April. Is that right? Yeah. We are um, having the third in a series of psychedelic science conferences. These are, um, again, public education is crucial. And we want people to know as this whole field is developing where it is. So in 2010, well, let me just say this. In 2006 was uh, a big conference in Switzerland for Albert Hoffman's 100th birthday. Mm. And it was organized by uh, Lucius Wertmuller and Dieter Hagenbach. And Dieter just uh, died a few days ago um, from cancer. Um, but it was the first really large psychedelic conference in uh, many, many years. Uh, it was fantastic for Albert's 100th. Everybody came for Albert's 100th <laughs> birthday, several thousand people. Yeah. Then there was another conference in 2008, also with Albert, but just a few months before he died. Um, and that's when we got LSD research approved in Switzerland, just a few months before Albert died so he could see it. But then um, we moved it back to the United States. So there are two large conferences in Europe. And then in 2010, we had the first psychedelic science in the U.S. in San Jose. And then we waited three years in 2013, and we had it in Oakland. And so we have the Oakland Marriott City Center, and we take the Oakland Convention Center. We take over the whole convention center and the whole exhibit center and have, you know, thousand people and what we're, or more. What we're bringing is the world's leading psychedelic researchers and a whole separate track on ayahuasca to both educate the public, but we're also having a day of meetings among ourselves, trying to help the field move forward. Yeah. And this is going to be from the 19th to the 24th of April in Oakland. Um, we'd like to invite every people who are interested to come. Stan Groff is organizing a two-day holotropic breathwork workshop. Uh, we're having one-day workshops each on how to work with psilocybin with patients and how to work with MDMA with patients. So for therapists are interested in it, we're having workshops on other topics, um, on ayahuasca and harm reduction. And, uh, the Women's Visionary Congress is going to have a That's very workshop cool. too. And we're um, trying to really say to each other, to the world, to the media, that... Um, the pilot data looks really good mm -hmm. and we need to be thinking ahead towards when these drugs become prescription medicines, which could be 2021 and how will we regulate them? How will we, what do we need to know now to make that even more possible? So we're starting to think about what do we need to know from insurance companies? How do we look at the cost of psychedelic psychotherapy or yeah. how do we look at the cost of, you know, 10 sessions of float for, you know, chronic pain or mm -hmm. something like that. So we're already starting to engage uh, health, uh, I had a meeting just the other day um, at Kaiser in Oakland with the possibility of partnering with them. We're exploring all sorts of possibilities of partnering, um, hopefully one day with the VA as well in the Department of Defense. Um, there's 868,000 veterans on disability payments right now for PTSD at a cost of over $10 billion. But we are having this conference in April, <laughs> and it's Psychedelic Science 2017, yeah. and there's information on our website. But I do want to uh, maybe say one last thing, which wow. is that the 
social change movements that we look around and that have succeeded, um, in particular, one of the ones that's most um, amazing to people is gay marriage mm-hmm. um, and gay rights. Um, it's just one aspect of civil rights. Um, but the the strategy by which that happened was gay people coming out and yeah. saying that they're no longer willing to be stigmatized, they're no longer willing to hide. And then you find out that there's gay athletes. I mean, you know, it's it's the stereotype you have of what it means to be homosexual. Yeah. When all the people that are homosexual come out, it's like they don't fit the stereotypes. Mm-hmm. It's just it's it's somehow or other cross sectional could be anybody. It's it's not the them. Do you think that's really applicable with all of this other stuff too? That if that's kind of we, a key component, we need the psychedelic coming out. Yeah, we totally need to do that. And one of the ways that we have tried to help in that process is we've organized uh, what we call global psychedelic dinners. <laughs> and so there's information on psychedelic dinners on our website. And what we're basically doing is, you know, people can join Maps. It's a tax deductible nonprofit. Map Maps dot org. Mm-hmm. But. What we're asking people to consider doing is to host a dinner and invite their friends, some people maybe that they don't know that well. And the purpose of this dinner is twofold. One is to um, share stories of what psychedelics have meant to them. Yeah. So personally, it could be, I took uh, psilocybin back when I was in college. I had a bad trip and I've never done it since. Mm-hmm. And it's always scared me. Or it could be, you know, I did it and it helped me get over this uh, addiction or, or whatever. Yeah. It's for people to share stories with each other uh, and then kind of prepare for sharing stories more with the wider world. And doing it in a dinner, in a context, it's in a safe place, it's in a restaurant or a home or something. It's, yeah. it's more private like that. And then the other purpose is if people want to help us, we're trying to raise $400,000 to buy... Um, a kilogram of legal medical grade MDMA <laughs> for use in all of our phase three studies. And we've already raised about 150,000 of it. Um, it the production is, uh, it's almost, uh, it's going to be done in a couple months. Nice. And it's what permits us then to become the source of MDMA for researchers all over the world and for making it into a medicine. So it's, it's a tremendous step forward. And I think for people to, um, come out i mean i I sat today at the float conference with um, someone who shared with me that he was 10 years in the police department Mm -hmm. he's involved in um, trying to open up a float center he's um, had to retire because of back pain and that he's found marijuana to be helpful yeah (laughs) and you know so to see um people's stories it's the most unlikely here's a police officer and then what he's sharing with me is about how many police officers have ptsd i used to be a police officer i was in law enforcement for eight years and the realization of the effects of being in law enforcement and what it really causes and does to you as a police officer it was very very i mean it became very very obvious obvious to me not only did i suffer from ptsd but that i could see it so clearly in all my co-work and then by all means, I, I don't like talking about it a lot, not because in any way, shape or form am I ashamed or anything like that. I don't like generalizing and I don't like, you know what I mean? Yeah. But it was really obvious. You could see it very, very clearly. And I had poor, you know, close personal relationships, obviously, with the people that I worked with. And um, I, I mean, there's aspects of it that just broke my heart. But it, it is amazing to hear the stories and see the things. And the fact is, that's one of the 
I mean, we're going to get on lost on another topic here because that's a huge topic yeah, in regards yeah. to the, especially society and the culture today in America. I don't think people really understand that, you know, the police officers that are out there helping and doing their job do suffer from PTSD. Yeah. Yeah. My nephew has just become a police officer mm -hmm. in Washington, D.C. And I, I think a lot of times, too, it's the misunderstanding that, you know, they're only going to suffer from PTSD if it's some horrific, you know, whether it is they have to have been involved in a shooting or they had to, have, you know, yeah. the fact is the vast majority of yes. the things that they deal with on a regular basis are traumatic. Yeah. Yeah. And so. Wow. Um, did you ever see the movie Boyhood? Do you know, it's about... Um, uh, by Richard Linklater. It's about... Um, yes, where they you know, followed that kid. Yeah. 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 And the reason I bring it up is because... It's um, Ethan Hawke in it, I think. Ethan Hawke, yeah. And um, the um, woman that he's in love with uh, has a series of... Um, they get divorced. She has other relationships that don't work out. But one of them that doesn't work out, they don't say anything about it hardly, but it's with the prison guard. Mm-hmm. And he was a, a, a rock vet. He was healthy. You know, they fell in love. And then in his area, the only job apparently he could find was as a prison guard. Mm -hmm. And it was just the subtext of how he became more violent, more coarse. Yeah. You know, and, and just wondering what it's like to have to be a guard in a prison. It must be so... I did that too. <laughs> oh my God. That was the beginning of my law enforcement was working in a correctional facility. And then I transitioned wow. out onto the road and... It's, it's, I don't think people really understand what those guys go through and what they deal with. And you know what I mean? And it's right. not by any means an excuse by right. any means. It's just, there's a huge, I mean, it's no different than that. There's misnomers and miseducation and misinformation, and they just don't really understand the realities right. of what police officers deal with yeah. or anybody in that realm of law enforcement. You know, how how this came to me was uh, kind of an unusual set of coincidences, but I've been trained to be scared of the police mm -hmm. and not very sympathetic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and um, one time, you know, I have my office in Boston. The office was uh, at this time uh, in Ben Lomond on Love Creek. And I was talking to this woman, Valerie, who was deputy director about what was going on. And she was saying that there was um, police all over the place because somebody um, a few houses away had been murdered and it was a pregnant woman. Mm. And I just started thinking how hard that must be for the police to go discover this pregnant woman killed. Yeah. And it just opened up this little kind of compassion for the police. And then later that afternoon, I got a call from somebody from Vancouver. Uh, he said he's a um, psychologist. And he was very curious about our study with Ibogaine for the treatment of opiate addiction that was going on in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. He was kind of wondering about how it was permitted and things. And then he said, you know, I really need to share with you that I'm actually a psychologist for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. <laughs> and, you know, we're just curious how, how this is happening. And um, He didn't want to shut it down or anything like that. But, but, something in me said, well, do you have police officers with PTSD? And he said, yeah, a lot. Yeah. And that's when we said, well, let's start seeing if we can start this project in Vancouver and try to then also enroll some police officers. Yeah. I think that's the divide. If we can really cross that divide. And we did get one police officer. We had a, our study, which 
we're writing up the results now was excellent. It was 22 veterans, three firefighters. One of them had actually been at 9-11 and one police officer with chronic treatment-resistant PTSD. But I never thought that we'd get a police officer, but yeah. we actually did. But but I'm curious if you, you, you um, are surprising me by this history. <laughs> <laughs> so what motivated you in the first place to go in that direction? Um, initially... Honestly, in the beginning, it was uh, looking for a good career, something that I, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Just some sort of a career, essentially. And uh, I came upon it, and I was interested in it. I mean, I grew up never, I didn't have the mentality growing up I was always going to be a cop or anything like that. It's in my family. Like, my, my grandfather was a L.A. County Sheriff's uh, for, that's what he retired from and everything. But... <laughs> That's how initially it was. I was just looking for a good job, a good career, something that I could support my family with. And then once I got involved in it, I realized I was really good at it. It like hit on every skill set that mm. I kind of had. So I kind of just was really good and I really enjoyed it and got really involved. And I mean, I got to the point where, like I said, I began my career in law enforcement in, the, in a correctional facility um, and then transitioned out and went and worked on the road as a police officer and everything. And it was... Uh, incredibly rewarding and I loved every aspect of it was completely committed to the whole idea I mean I was a police officer do you know what I mean and then the way my spiritual journey unfolded and everything kind of happened and I have a one of the really interesting things um, working in a correctional facility gave me a really good understanding of mental illness yeah. because I think that's an also a obviously a huge topic. I mean, it's the undertone of what we've been talking about because we're treating mental illness with MDMA and things like that. But just society as a whole, that's one thing that I think, because you mentioned gay marriage and how everybody had to come out of the closet and start talking about it. I think it's the, I think it's the same thing when it comes to mental health. So even police officers have to step forward and say, Hey, I'm suffering here. I'm not necessarily, you know, it's PTSD, it's depression, it's anxiety, all of these things that are, experiencing because i'm a police officer it's so important you mentioned too because some large fraction of people in prison are mentally ill mm -hmm. and we've taken them out of the hospitals but we mm -hmm. haven't we're still housing them at great expense yeah and that and not much mind. good for them either i didn't realize that going into that do you know what i mean and then it yeah. became really apparent i'm like oh my goodness the vast majority of the population in here suffers from one form or another mental illness yeah. and then saw the same thing when i was out on the road do you know what I mean? And it's yeah. not, I mean, I think it's all that intertwinedness of the fact is when people have some form of mental illness because treatment isn't available because it's not easy to go and get right. help, right. Um, then that's when they start looking elsewhere. And that's why I think drugs have become what they are in society and all the other issues and things that we have. And How did you think about drugs when you became a police officer and needed to arrest people for them? Um, I always kind of had a really, you know, growing up and things like that, I always had kind of a open mind. I, in no way, shape or form was heavily involved in drugs growing up or anything, but it wasn't, it was simply just out of, I wasn't exposed to it. And then when I became a police officer and honestly, I had a really hard time with a lot of it because it was so asinine in my mind. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Especially, I mean weed is one thing nine times out of ten if i could smell weed i wasn't overly concerned about it because i mean hardly ever did we deal with somebody in weed in a negative way yeah <laughs> and then uh meth and heroin are 
obviously a ginormous issue and a, ginormous, a huge problem. And so I, I had a hard time arresting people um, who were simply just addicts and needed help. Mm-hmm. And that was the way that they were coping in and managing with whatever pain and suffering and mental illness they had inside. And so that's how I kind of, that was the you know internal dilemma for me. But in the end, I was very proud of being a police officer. I knew that I had a job and I knew that there were aspects of what I had to do simply because that was my job. And mm-hmm. that was the way that things had to be. But it was an internal struggle. It was part of the aspect too that led me to obviously getting out of law enforcement and stuff. So hmm. lots of big shifts but yeah so what um can you imagine a time when um um there can be an alliance in a way between the i would say left-wing <laughs> drug users <laughs> and the police i mean it's always felt to me that if there wasn't the drug war mm-hmm. that the relationship with the police would be completely different i think so i mean i think the vast majority and this is the other reason i i i I don't by any means, I'm not a professional. I would, you know, I didn't spend 50 years in law enforcement. And so I hate speaking for a community that I highly respect and everything like that. And this is me and my opinion. And granted, I have experience that I'm drawing from, but, um, God, I lost track of what you had. Oh, a a collaboration. Um, I think the vast majority of crime stems from drugs in some way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. And so, it's either people seeking to, to to find some source of income for drug use, um, but so many times everything leads back to drugs. And I don't think drugs is the problem. I really think that mental health is the problem. Yeah. And because, you know, I would see people, I would see people in jail who would come in completely strung out. They were addicts. They were completely, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And after they go through that entire detox process because they're inside prison facility for so long then they get clean and you see how completely different they are and they get clear-headed and then they're able to kind of manage with the help of some of the systems that were in place and things like that um but in the end it's i I really don't think drugs are the issue i think it's been made that way whether it's by the government whether it's by the dea whatever the case may be i think that's how it's been steered in that direction for whatever reason well it's also um by the people themselves because instead of blaming ourselves let's mm-hmm. blame the exactly drugs. yeah yeah and i like i said i really think the core issue at all of it is stems from mental illness do you know what i mean yeah, and yeah. the whole in my mind and this is me right the whole idea is that everybody falls on the spectrum of mental illness no yeah, one yeah. is immune to it and it's just a big spectrum and some people are on this end and some people are in the middle and some people are on that end but it's silly to think that somehow if somebody is on that spectrum and maybe they're schizophrenic or maybe whatever the case may be that they're you know i mean we have to help them we have to find a way because obviously drugs aren't the answer unless they're used in such a way like you guys are doing i mean that's the incredible part for me you know actually at the site in israel where we do the um MDMA PTSD research. Mm-hmm. There's a, a special ward for people who are driven crazy by being in concentration camps. Really? Yeah, we wanted to work with them because so many of them, obviously, they all have trauma, mm-hmm. but their health was pretty bad. They were really pretty old. But just that idea that under certain kind of pressures, we could all be cracking too. Yeah. 
Um, so, so when you emerge from the police, what, what about your, you know, peers from before? How much have you been able to share with them? Or, uh, I always tried to help as much as I could because <laughs> it wasn't initial. It wasn't a cut and dry go from one to the other. Yeah. It was a beautiful kind of, do you know what I mean? And so I always tried to help in ways that I could and tried to spark conversation and try to push some of them to those points to look and analyze and mm-hmm. see. And the fact is too, um, a lot of times police officers get labeled as assholes and yeah. we're yeah. afraid of them and they're, yeah. you know, they're just out to cause problems and everything. Obviously the vast majority of them are just normal, everyday yeah. loving people who have yeah. to do a really shitty job that eventually I think, I think has that tendency to change them. And unless they can see it, and manage it and cope it and unless there's systems in place for that yeah you know you talk about it as a shitty job um you know there's a nobility to it mm-hmm. and so i think what parts of it are shitty are laws that you have to enforce that you don't believe in mm-hmm. there's a whole special area for ptsd developing now called moral injury it's it's one thing to be fighting a war because you believe that you're threatened and need to yeah it's another thing to be fighting a war that you don't believe in. And so that's where the trauma that you have from war is made even worse when there's this moral injury aspect to it. So a lot of the Iraq War veterans are, are suffering, and in Afghanistan even too, from um, the sense that this war was not accomplishing what it was supposed to accomplish, not in the national interest, not entered into on honest terms and um but i but i i mean i think those of us that don't want decisions made by force but more by fairness mm-hmm. are grateful for the police yeah it's just when, sometimes when, it seems like a necessary evil where they are there to do some of those things that and it's the same thing with war in general right it, yeah it's not even an evil it's like sometimes people don't play by the rules and they they don't respect that and and um, I mean, it, even sometimes one of the things, you know, the, the at Burning Man, the um, BLM have brought people to us tripping in handcuffs mm-hmm. because they were uh, raging out and hurting others and not oblivious and they, they needed to be restrained. Yeah. Then they'd come hours later and we'd calm them down and they'd take them out of the handcuffs. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's a hard job no matter what, for mm-hmm. sure. And you're seeing humanity when it goes wrong and you could say that a therapist is the same i mean you don't see people that lives are normally just working perfectly <laughs> yeah you know, like come to you and something's like not quite working yeah yeah and i think the beauty of what we're hearing too at the float conference me is that um this transition um that sort of um kevin was talking about this morning uh, about working for with people in pain mm-hmm. and helping them deal with their problems but then also working with those on a spiritual path yeah that's kind of an ongoing process yeah and i think that's where with drugs most people's associations are with drug addicts people with the problems but more and, and there are many of those and we can help them in all different ways but the idea of incorporating drugs into a healthy lifestyle mm-hmm. over the course of all these transitions of um, aging it makes total sense and i think that's where we're trying to go but it's it's in conjunction with other healing technologies and um yeah it's an it's exciting great. time to be alive there's it, lots of good stuff coming it's terrifying <laughs> I, I mean i think yeah it's slightly more exciting than terrifying yeah 
because I'm basically a little bit more optimistic <laughs> than not. And, and even just hearing of your story, that's incredible. I mean, to um, have evolved in that way. I mean, it sounds a lot like it was because of the your grandfather. But was he like your mother or father? I wonder what was the impact of his being a police officer on his kid? Um, that's an interesting <laughs> one. So he w- it was my father's father. Mm-hmm. And, oh my goodness, Rick, that would be... A really, I I know without a doubt. Obviously, it had an impact on my father having a having you know my grandfather be a cop in yeah. the sheriff's department for I mean I don't know it's thirty thirty five years. I have no doubt that that had an effect yeah. on him, which then of course obviously affected me in the long run. And I don't know that would be something <laughs> incredibly interesting to kind of dissect and pick apart. Was your dad glad when you became a police officer? Very or? much so. Huh. Yeah, very very much so. Very proud. There's a, like you said, there's, it's a noble job. Yeah. It's yeah. a respected job in some sense. And in yeah. some regards, even those people who, you know, sometimes view them in a, in a poor light, uh, I think it is still a respected profession for the most part. And it should be because it is a challenging thing. Yeah. But my, it is, it's a noble job. The problem for me is, is just that often the politicians are less than noble mm-hmm. and then the police are instruments of that. Mm-hmm. And then you get into police states and that whole kind of thing it really depends the nobility depends on you know who's telling them what to do exactly (laughs) what law do they have to follow yeah and i mean i think for the most part that i struggled with that all the time there's plenty of asinine things out there that are criminalized yeah not just marijuana not just drugs and and the same as being um, a veteran or enlisting Mm -hmm. in the army Mm -hmm. i mean i feel like if it weren't for the u.s military even though you know, I described how I was a draft resistor for Vietnam. Um, I feel like in many countries of the world, um, I would have been arrested or jailed or killed. There's death squads all over the place for people that just believe a little bit different, yeah. that want to challenge the system. So I'm incredibly grateful for that. It's also that other... Well, I'll tell you what. Um, Daniel Ellsberg, who was the Pentagon Papers... Um, he had this. He was uh, worked at the National Security Agency, and um, he was the one that revealed the um, secret history of the Vietnam War by the Pentagon. And um, he's what led to Nixon's downfall, actually, <laughs> because Nixon um, sent the plumbers to go into his psychiatrist's office and steal his files to try to discredit him. But he um, was through Harvard. He was the top layers of the, the government. Um, working in the uh, national security um, and he could see uh, that the story that people were being told was different than what was actually happening. Yeah. But he described how he evolved from um, seeing that uh, his, his initial view was that we were on the wrong side in Vietnam, that, that there was... A dictatorship that we were propping up. There was, um, you know, popular revolt against the dictatorship. Uh, we sort of pushed them into the arms of the communists and turned it into this proxy war. But he felt that we were on the wrong side. Um, and then as he started seeing more and more, he started realizing that we were the wrong side. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, and I, I think that's the scary part for me of um joining the system yeah you know that there there's a lot that we're 
still the bastion of freedom in a lot of different ways and really you know i'm so lucky to have been born here um and, and so i think the common interests across these divides i mean we're doing so much work with veterans and we're talking about expanding into police officers too mm -hmm. ptsd is um trying to make it so that there's enough of a healthy consciousness in the people that the people that are the rulers the, the politicians where we give our collective power that those decisions are made in a more thoughtful and humane and um, long-term yeah respectful kind of a manner it'd be nice well, I think we'll either get there or we'll destroy ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, I can't thank you enough. Like I said, thank you so much for sitting down. Thank you and, for sharing so much, too. And, uh, yeah. Give me a chance to interview you. <laughs> for sure. Uh, it's maps.org, right? Yeah. Best place to keep up and find yeah. everything and all that good yeah, stuff. Yeah, and, and the psychedelic dinners uh, stuff on our website and the conference. And thank you so Beautiful. much for helping me educate people. Yeah. Well, everybody, I know you enjoyed this episode. It was amazing. It was incredible. And we always sign off with everybody to go out and have a beautiful, wonderful day. I think that people have to heal themselves. It's a danger to take psychedelics or to go into the flow tank and say, I'm only going to look for the happy emotions. Part of the mystery and magic is that you don't know where it's going to go. And you have to be open for the range. MDMA will be um, a doorway to help heal a sick culture from a bad trip from the 60s.